Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Good? Good, 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 good. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the uh, pastors here on staff at the church, and I just want to welcome you. Thank you for coming. It is a, a pleasure of mine to lead our Bible study today. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be reading out of Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's probably a hardback black Bible underneath the seat close to you. There's a little basket underneath some of those chairs. You're welcome to use one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible home with you. Um, you can write your name in it, call it your own. There is just something, and I hope this comes through in my message today. There's just something real significant to the work of God's words in our life. Like more so than um, probably anything else that you'll encounter, you know, next to God's spirit in this world. But next to anything else, the, the word of God will have such, can have such a transformative work in your life. Um, and I love you as a pastor. I say this to you. But you, it's, you have to work into it. You know, I used to say this often. You can't just put the pillow underneath, or the Bible rather, underneath your pillow at night and just go to bed and think it's going to leak into your brain that way. Like you used to do chemistry. Anybody used to do that when they were studying? Like just praying, God, let this get into my brain somehow. But it doesn't work that way. Like we lean into it. So anyways, if you don't have a Bible, you can take one with you. So I want to open up today talking about um, religious people. Um, legalistic people, not, not to necessarily to, to make fun of them or to judge them, but to learn something from them. So I want to tell you a story. Um, we're going to talk about the Sabbath today in Luke chapter 6. Jesus is being confronted by some religious leaders. We'd call them legalists. And they're addressing him about the Sabbath. And we're going to talk a little bit about Sabbath. And just if you have no ground um, working understanding of what a Sabbath is, it's just an ordinance that God instituted for his Jewish nation, the, the nation of Israel, that they would take a day off a week to rest. And it's called the Sabbath or the Shabbat. And they would take a day off, a 24-hour period to rest. And so even today, if you're around Orthodox Jewish people, you know, people really devout and religious, um, on the Sabbath, they still take it very seriously. And there's a rule on the Sabbath that Jewish people aren't allowed to walk more than a biblical mile on the Sabbath. They don't want, the Lord's like, this would be a day of rest, you're supposed to rest, so you can't walk too far. But there's a distinction in their rule book, so to speak, that says, unless you're on a body of water, so if you're on a body of water on the Sabbath, you can travel more than a mile. And I don't know why that is. It's possible because maybe it's harder to, to tell how far you've traveled when you're floating like on an ocean or something. Or, or maybe it's like, maybe you're actually, you have the motor turned off and you're just drifting. The current's just taking you. But there is that one distinction. You can't, can't walk a mile, but if you have, but if you have, if you're on body of water, you can travel more than a mile. And this, this, I heard this story this last week. There is an individual who knows an Orthodox Jewish person who on the Sabbath, wait for it, takes a bottle of water and puts it underneath his car seat so that on the Sabbath he can drive wherever he wants because he's over water. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. 
if, you, if you've been around um, Orthodox Jewish people um, on the Sabbath, uh, particularly in a building that's a high rise that has multiple floors, they'll have elevators that they call Shabbat elevators or Sabbath elevators. The Jewish people are not allowed on the Sabbath to push buttons or to flip switches because it somehow makes electricity current connect, which is considered work for them. So they can't do it. So when you get on an elevator on the Sabbath, you can't push the buttons, right? So what they decided to do is just have the elevator stop on every floor. So if you go to Israel today, right, and you get on an elevator, that's a Shabbat elevator on the Sabbath, it will, it, the doors will open on every floor. It'll go up one floor, open, whether people are getting on or off or not, right? And I read a story of a friend, uh, this pastor who was visiting Israel and he did not understand the Shabbat elevator and he got into one on the Sabbath and he goes, does Shabbat mean slow? Because this thing has taken forever to get up. And there were some Orthodox Jews on the elevator with him and they said, no, no, no. And he, they explained why we can't push buttons. It'd be a sin for us. And so he asked the question that you're begging to know, are there other elevators that you can take instead of the Shabbat elevator? And they said, absolutely. We call them Gentile elevators and you're, they're, they're next to the other elevator. So you can get on. So the next stop, this pastor gets off of the elevator and jumps on the Gentile elevator. Wait for it. And all of the Orthodox Jewish people follow him <laughs> onto that elevator and then say, can you push number seven for me? <laughs> like, like it's a sin to God to push a button. So we're not going to do it. But would you mind? Would you mind? And not to poke fun at the Jewish people, we could do this with Lutherans and Catholics and we won't do that, but uh, it is fun to sort of pick on the fundamentalist conservatives among us. But there is a, a university in uh, South Carolina, I think Greenville, called Bob Jones University. How many people have heard of Bob Jones University? Um, started from uh, evangelist Bob Jones about 100 years ago, but it's a very conservative school. It's good for education. They do some good teaching and training there. But they're really known for their legalistic structure on how they run the school and, and the, the rules that the students are supposed to obey while they're there. In fact, I looked up their student handbook from 2020, and these are some rules from just a couple years ago. If you were a student going to Bob Jones University, you would have to obey by these. And I just picked a few random ones. Um, for men, uh, we're speaking about your hair here, so not for you, Nate, but for others. <laughs> but wait for it. It says man buns, ponytails, and mullets are not suitable. Now, I agree with that. I agree with that. <laughs> I have no problem with all of that statement right there. But here's another one for the men. It says, men should shave daily. So when you're a student at Bob Jones University, you will shave every day. You shave every day, unless it says you're growing a neatly trimmed half inch or less, and this is spelled out in the rule book, half inch or less beard of facial hair. However, facial hair, and I'm not making this up, should be established while away from campus. So like, bro, you can have a beard, it can only be half inch, and you can't grow said beard while you're a student at the school. You have to go home for Thanksgiving break, grow your beard, and then come back. Is this, is this crazy? Now, I'm, I, I don't say these things to make fun of religious people. And, and for the, the Bob Jones University in particular, these rules aren't just like standard rules. They also have rules about music that you should listen to. The, the students, while they're there at university, and at any point, any faculty can pull your earphones out and listen to what you're listening to. They're not allowed to listen to, and I quote here, students should avoid rock, pop, jazz, country, 
rap and hip hop. What's left at this point? <laughs> what, what else can you listen to? In, in an earlier iteration of their handbook, it said students can listen to classical, three types of music, classical, semi-classical, whatever that is, and religious music. That's the only three classifications of music. Okay. And not to, to make fun of the legalist or the religious person, but you have to understand that the, the people here are, are not just making these rules because they think it's a good idea that students follow them. Like at Renaissance, we have rules. Like we have rules, like when, when our staff can take lunch breaks and when they're out of the office, they have to like check out the, in the calendar to make sure we all know what's going on. I'm not against rules, but with this university in particular, they believe that these rules are driven by, by um, issues of the Bible, that for men to have a mullet is actually unrighteous, probably. <laughs> I mean, if we're voting, it probably. I don't know, right? But, but that's, that's the idea. These things are not just rules because I think it's a good, good idea. These are rules because it, the Bible says we should be like this. And it's just they, legalistic religious people sometimes just stretch the rules. And again, it's not to make fun of these people, although that is enjoyable to do sometimes. But, it, but we need to learn, we need to learn the signs of legalism. We need to understand what legalism looks like, even in our own lives, and, and the dangers of legalism. And I believe there are some dangers to be legalistic and, and uh, over-religious. Many times religious people and, and legalistic people will be unbiblical in their understanding of the world. They will be unloving. And they're oftentimes even dangerous. And that's the, the thrust of my message today. So I want to read Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. You can follow along in your own Bible or on the screens, and then we'll get started. Let's start here in chapter 6, verse 1. And it says, on the Sabbath, while he, Jesus, was going through some grain fields with his disciples, the disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, and they were rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, and the Pharisees are the religious leaders, you know, of Jesus' day. Some of the Pharisees questioned, why are you doing that? Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? In verse 3, so Jesus answered them, and he says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and, he, and those who were with him? How David entered into the house of God and he took and he ate the bread of the presence. What's all this stuff? We'll talk about it in a little bit. But he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to do, but only the priests to eat. And he also gave it to the guys that were with him. And then Jesus said to these Pharisees, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. And we'll get back to that. Verse six, and it says on another Sabbath, and here's another one, that Jesus entered the synagogue and he was teaching as Jesus was prone to do on the, the Sabbath. And a man was there whose right hand was withered and the scribes and the Pharisees were there also and they were watching Jesus to see whether he would heal this man on the Sabbath. And so that they thought they might find a reason to accuse Jesus of working on the Sabbath. This is the idea. Verse eight, but Jesus, he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And so he rose and he stood there in front of everyone. And Jesus said to all of the people watching, I ask you this question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Is it lawful to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, and I can just picture him looking into all of their eyes, everyone, 
After looking to all of them, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And when the man did so, his hand was fully restored. But they, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the legalists among them, they were filled with fury. They were angered at Jesus and they discussed with one another what they might do to get rid of him or what they're going to do to Jesus. We learn, I think, in one of the other gospels, it's at this point that the religious leaders choose at this moment that they're going to kill Jesus because of this. Did I mention that religious people can be dangerous? Yeah. Let's pray together. Father God, I'm just struck by the, the reality that as we gather today on a Father's Day, that the worship, both from Torsten and from Samantha, was directed towards you, Lord, that we love you, Father, and we thank you for your son, Jesus. So this Father's Day, uh, may we enjoy you know, things here on this earth, but more importantly, Lord, may you get the glory and all the honor in everything that we do. God, would you bless our time together? And Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear? We want to be transformed by your word. And we say these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. So I mentioned that Sabbath day is a day of rest. It's a day of not working. And it was instituted by God way back in the Old Testament. In fact, in the, in the story of the beginning, the book of Genesis, it says that God created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in them in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. So we see this institution of a day of rest way back in the beginning. And then he eventually gives Moses, right, the Ten Commandments, if you remember the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment was honor the Sabbath and make it holy. So God wanted for his people to have a day of rest, which means no work, but it means more than just more work. It means actually leaning into a, a trusting and a faithfulness that, that you believe God is going to provide for you even when you're not working. And so, so many of us rely on what we do to make our, our boat go across the lake, so to speak. But every once in a while, once a week, the Lord would say, shut her down. Shut it down and, and watch me do something now. Like if anything happens good for you on that day, then you can give no credit to yourself. Say amen. Yes, but only God. And so he wants us to experience that. So it wasn't just don't work. It was lean into the trustfulness. If you know the story of Jesus, sorry, of Moses and the Israelites coming out of bondage in slavery in Egypt, making their way into the promised land. And God provided for them by this flaky substance called manna that would come from heaven every day. And he would tell them that you can go out in the morning and collect what you want for the day, but don't save anything for tomorrow. And if you, if you try to keep too much overnight, it would rot. But on one day of the week, when there would be rest, he would say, why don't you gather two, two days worth and miraculously, it wouldn't rot overnight and they would have enough for the Sabbath day. Even in giving the manna, God was telling them, listen, just rest. Just let me do this. Just have faith in me. Who has faith in the Lord? Who, who has trust in him that even when you're not striving, God is striving on your behalf? Yes? <laughs> yes. He is. Oh my gosh. He likes you more than you think he does. He's quite attached to you. In fact, you need to look no further than the, the cross at Calvary to see how much love, what love looks like as he sent Jesus, his only son, to die for you on the cross. He is connected to you in a way that you don't fully understand, possibly. 
And a way to endear yourself towards him is to take this day of rest. And the, and the day was not just a day of not working, but it also became a marker, a point of demarcation for God's people. It became a way to identify God's people. You know, if you read the Old Testament laws, God's people were a strange bunch, amen, right? They didn't eat bacon, say amen. That's a weird thing for me, I'm just saying. They, there's a lot of strange things. And a lot of these things were identity markers for God's people. They were different than the people around them. In fact, Joel B. Green in his commentary on Luke says this, that Sabbath was a way for maintaining group boundaries as well as an, em, and an emblem of group solidarity. Solidarity, sorry. Simply put, it helped define God's people. God's people looked like something. They looked like people who trusted. They looked like people who had faith. They looked like people who Sabbathed because they had trust in God. But over time, this national identity of the Jews began to wane as they were oppressed by the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Greeks, and eventually the Romans. By the time of Jesus, the Romans are in uh, lordship over them. And many of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the, Sabbath, or the, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Pharisees, many of these religious leaders believed that the reason they were oppressed and have been oppressed for centuries is because of their lackadaisicalness, their laziness in keeping the commands of God, i.e. keeping the Sabbath. And so they got real particular on people keeping the Sabbath. And they made rules around the rules, around the rules of keeping the Sabbath. R.C. Sproul said this, that they had about a thousand laws which regulated what could and could not be done on the Sabbath day. And the vast majority of those laws were not positive commandments in terms of what should be done on the Sabbath, but rather they were negative prohibitions, statements of what was not allowed. I don't know about you, but in this moment, you have to feel the tension that God's people, when they're Sabbathing, they are not enjoying the pleasure and the joy of communion with God, but they're becoming bound by this thing that was designed by God himself to show the faithfulness and the trust and the leadership that God had over their life. And now all of a sudden, the Sabbath is a yoke that is burdening God's people. And in the midst of this, Jesus enters into the scene. Yay, Jesus. Oh, let's try it. And Jesus enters into the scene. Yay, Jesus. Yes, yay, Jesus. And he enters into the scene and he starts to do things on the Sabbath that the religious leaders go, what? What? And Jesus is saying something by doing these things. What is he saying? That sometimes religious people can be unbiblical. Verse 1 of chapter 6, it says on the Sabbath, while they are going through the grain fields, Jesus is walking through the grain fields with some of his disciples, and his disciples were hungry, and so they plucked some, some heads of grain, and they rubbed it between their hands, and they separated the kernel from the chaff, and they popped the kernel into their mouth, and they chewed on it and ate it, and the Pharisees were watching Jesus and his disciples closely. Verse 2, and they asked him, what are you doing? What you're doing is not even lawful to do on the Sabbath. In verse 3, but then Jesus answered them. Hang on real quick. I need you to see this first. And if I don't get past this one thing, if we could get this one thing today, this would be my hope. Is the Pharisees came to Jesus' disciples and accused them of breaking the commands. Them of breaking the commandment of honoring the Sabbath. They accused them of breaking the law, basically. And Jesus is the one that responds to them. Do you see that? 
that when accusation is levied against Jesus' disciples, Jesus is the one that stands in front and says, I'll take this. Huh? Is that good? I think this guy gets it over here. Not 100% sure on this side. Jesus is the one who stands in front of the accused, the ones that's accused and says, you're worthless. You're pitiful. You'll never change. And Jesus is going, excuse me? The Bible talks about an adversary that we as Christians have called the devil or Satan. He's called the accuser. It's what Satan means, the accuser. And he stands before God's people, constantly reminding them of their sins, constantly bringing shame and condemnation. In fact, there's a motif in scripture that shows, it plays out like a courtroom drama that at the end of our days, we will stand before God who is holy and just, and he will judge us for our lives. You've heard of this, right? It's appointed, once, it's appointed unto a man once to die and then face what? Judgment. So we will stand before God. And I picture the accuser, Satan, standing there telling God everything we've ever done that's sinful. And he won't be wrong in saying it. And you'll probably say, oh, and I did this thing too. <laughs> and you'll be adding to it. Like there's more things. And then, and then I see a picture like of, a, of a, a, another attorney there, Jesus, who comes in, not just an attorney, but he, he comes in and he says, listen, I agree. He's guilty as charged, but I'll take his punishment. And this is what Samantha was talking about earlier, that Jesus stands in the place of the accused and doesn't just dismiss the charges as, as if they don't matter. They do matter. Of course, you were sinful. But Jesus stands in the place and says, listen, I'll take his punishment. If death is due him, I'll take it. I'll do that. And, and we use language in scripture like redeemed or bought back or purchased. Jesus has purchased us with his blood, with his death. He's buried in a grave and he's raised from the dead. And as we said earlier, as he is raised, so are we. And we live into something new. So when the accuser comes, Jesus stands in front and says, no. He says, no, that's who he used to be before he met me. That's, who, that's what he used to do. Yes, you're still driven by so fleshly desires and worldly desires, but you're not driven by sin any longer. In Christ Jesus, you have a new nature. You desire holy things, but every once in a while, you go, no, I like my old ways too, and you, you go into that. But even when that happens, Jesus frees you from that when the accuser comes. So all that to say, the Pharisees accuse his disciples, and Jesus says, excuse me, if you're gonna talk to them, you need to talk to me. He kind of went Karen on just a little bit, I'm just saying. <laughs> I don't know if that's uh, biblical or not, but I feel like he wanted to talk to the manager. I don't know who's in charge of the Pharisees, but I'm here to talk to them. <laughs> That's really how my mind works. I apologize for that. But I mentioned that the religious people oftentimes are unbiblical. It's, it's in no less than these few verses here, we have references to at least four Old Testament passages. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, the, uh, the fourth commandment given to Moses is the Sabbath is to be kept and made holy. We have in Exodus 31, we have regulations about the Sabbath. All these things are included in this walking through the fields on the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, there's actually a provision in the Old Testament law that says when you're walking through a field and you're hungry, you can actually pick grain and eat it. You can do that. There's a law, Deuteronomy chapter 23, you can read it yourself. And in 1 Samuel 21, we see the story of David and the showbread and all that. If we have time, to, we'll get into all of that. But just know this. The issue with what the disciples were doing was not exactly what they were doing, it was when they were doing it. 
Because there is a provision to pluck grain from a stranger's field and eat it when you're hungry. That wasn't the issue that the, the, the Pharisees had. It was that they were doing so on the Sabbath. And when they took that kernel between their hands and they rubbed off the chaff and they ate, that's called work. And you cannot work. And so they, they misunderstand and misuse the, the keep the, the Sabbath holy. They miss all of that stuff because they're more concerned about knowing their own rules than they are about knowing what the Bible says about things. And so t sometimes religious people legalistic people become more consumed with knowing rules than knowing scripture. Hear me when I say this, rules cannot set you free. They cannot. The word of God can set you free, right? Because it testifies to Jesus. And that's why we try to teach the, the word, the Bible all the time. So religious people are un, oftentimes unbiblical. I'm running out of time. Um, they are also unloving so even, even though the Pharisees, sorry, the disciples were hungry on the Sabbath as they're walking through the field um, and they plucked some grain, the, the Pharisees didn't care. We don't care if you're hungry, bro. Wait, you got to wait it out. And they're just unkind and unloving. In fact, Luke records for us another issue that happens on a Sabbath in verse 6. Luke, who writes the Gospel of Luke, says this on verse 6. On another Sabbath, Jesus enters the synagogue and he's teaching. And there's a man there whose right hand was withered. May I remind you that, that Luke is a physician. He's a doctor, so he knows the things of anatomy and the, the body and this and that. And Luke is the only one who tells us that this person's hand that was withered was his right hand, which just means his strong hand, which means the hand that this person needs every day to live. You can, you can imagine if, if you're right-handed and you break your hand or something, you have to write left-handed. It's just really hard. This person's been dealing with that for some time. And Luke wants us to see that, that this is a desperate situation for this man. His right hand is withered. In verse 7, it says, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath or not. <laughs> What's hilarious is that we're, there were provisions to, to help people on the Sabbath, when I mentioned that some of these Sadducees and these religious leaders had rules upon rules upon rules, if you read through some of their writings of the oral tradition and stuff, you'll see that there are rules on the Sabbath that say things like this. Like if on the Sabbath, your neighbor's house collapses on him, right? Sucks to be him, sure, right? On the Sabbath, well, you're not supposed to do any work. They make a provision. You can actually go to your neighbor's house and work, quote unquote, dig through the rubble to see if they're still alive or not. And if they're dead, you're supposed to leave them till the next day, then it's not the Sabbath and you can dig them out and bury them or whatever. And if they're alive, you can continue to dig them out and save them. So there are rules around this that you can actually do good on the Sabbath. You can work to help people. But what I find interesting is that the Pharisees are watching Jesus not to see if he's gonna heal this man because he desperately needs healed because they think it's an issue that should be remedied and Jesus is the one that can do it. They're only watching Jesus do this so they can confront him for working on the Sabbath. When I say religious people are unloving, they don't even care if this person's hand gets healed. They're saying, it's a situation, I get it, I understand, but you have to wait till tomorrow, bro, because the rule says we don't work on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, you, have, you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't even know what you're saying. And so Jesus asks the man to stand up, and then he asks everyone in the room, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? This is in verse nine. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Jesus begins to challenge the thoughts of his opponents. 
you got to hear this. The ultimate issue for Jesus was not doing good versus doing nothing. Like heal him or don't. It wasn't that. It's like, it's, it's rather it's doing good versus doing evil. And Jesus is intimating here that to not heal him because of some Sabbath regulation is akin to doing evil. When you have the opportunity to do something good and choose not to for religious reasons is doing evil. You can read James chapter four if you want some more understanding on that. This is not doing something or waiting for another day to do it. It's doing good or doing evil. And Jesus is saying, if you're willing to put God's your rules above helping others, you've misplaced everything in your life. So religious people are oftentimes not only unbiblical, but they're unloving, and they're oftentimes dangerous. Verse 11, after Jesus healed the man, after staring them down in the eyes, it says that they were filled with fury. They were filled with fury. Uh, one of the, some of the other tr English translations use the word madness. They were, they were filled with madness. They were just overcome with insanity that Jesus would, would be so bold to heal somebody on the Sabbath in front of them. And they were filled with fury and madness. They were mad at Jesus. They were mad at Jesus healing this man. They were mad at this man for even coming to the, the synagogue to be healed. They were mad at Jesus, the followers, for following Jesus and listening to his teachings and learning his interpretation of Scripture. It says they were mad. Matthew Henry says this. He says, We may well stand amazed that the sons of men, the Pharisees, were, would be so wicked as to, to do this, to plot to kill Jesus because he healed somebody. He says, we may well stand amazed at that, but we should also stand amazed that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, would be so patient to suffer underneath it as well. That he knew what was going to happen when he did this that he knew when he stood out to do good for this man that the Pharisees would rise up against him. He knew his days were being numbered with the religious elite. At some point, they're going to come after him. He understands this and still chooses to do it anyways. This is the Jesus that we serve. I have a few minutes left, and I want to close with this. Back in verse 5, back in verse 5, that on the first Sabbath, when there's the issue of them walking through, sorry, yeah, walking through the grain fields and the disciples pick this thing, and, and Jesus' rebuttal to um, the Pharisees, he says, don't you know the story of David? Haven't you read? It's almost to say, you, you, you say you know scriptures, then you should know this story, and he tells them this story, and I want to give it to you in, in my close. That in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, uh, David uh, is soon to be king. He's, going to, he's anointed king, but he's not king yet because the current king, a guy named King Saul, is trying to kill David. And so David is running for his life, and he's got a, a few friends with him, a couple uh, mighty men, the Bible calls them. And he's traveling with these mighty men, and they're, and they're starving as they're running for their lives, and they come to the tabernacle, the, the house of God, and they go to the priest, and they say, bro... My words. They say, bro, we're starving. Is there something we can eat? And the priest just says these words. The only food right here are these 12 loaves of bread that we put out here every week to remind us and God's people of what? His provision for them. 
They, this is what they do. They bake a loaf, 12 loaves. They put them in stacks of six over here and stacks of six over here, one for each tribe of Israel. And they put them there to remind God's people of all of his provision for them. And the priest says, I'm sorry, this is the only bread we have. And only the priest can eat it. But, the, but the, the priest looks at David, and I don't know if he has an understanding that David is going to be king one day. I don't know if he understands this or not, but at some point he's moved with compassion, and he asks this one question. Wait for it. He, he, asks the, he asks David and the men, he goes, well, hang on, all right, here's what I'll do. Have any of you been with a woman lately? Well, strange question, I know. He just wants to know, are, have you been pure? And you can almost picture David and his men, like we haven't showered in weeks, ain't no women getting close to us, I'm just saying. <laughs> we are pure as pure comes. <laughs> And the priest says, then you can eat the bread. Okay, Jesus is considered the son of David. David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. And there, there's prophesied a king would come in the lineage of David. He would be a son of David who would rule on David's throne forever and ever and ever. And that person is who? Jesus. And Jesus tells these Pharisees this story. Don't you know what David did? What, what David with his little limited earthly kingdom, he was able to overthrow the commands of God that says we can eat this bread. And they did so with no qualms. And, and Jesus says, I am the son of man, the one chosen by God, sinned by God, anointed by God. He goes, I am the Lord over this Sabbath situation that you think you have. That if it was okay for David to do it, it's going to be okay for me to do it. And not just that, you have me misplaced, everyone. I am much higher than you think I am. And that's what I want you to take home with you today. Oh, come on, Lord, come on. He is so much greater than you think he is. He speaks into parts of your life that you, you don't even understand yet. And he, he does so willingly and lovingly. You think he's just another rabbi going around breaking commands. You just think he's another good teacher who can help you when you're hurting. You just think he's someone that you can kind of pray to when things get upside down at work or your girlfriend left you and all these terrible things that happen. I get it, I get it. He is those things. And he's so much more. He's so much more. Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He is, he is the key that unlocks the, the abundant life that, he ha that God has for you. There is no other way to get to the things that God has for you but through Jesus Christ, which is why if you come to, to Renaissance, we just, we exalt Jesus. We praise him because he's a big deal. Say amen. He's a real big deal. If you're visiting Renaissance, we also like haze. We like a little haze in the room right? Right? But that's not the big deal. Jesus is the big deal. We like loud music. We love it. We love to worship loud. And we do that because we don't want to hear you sing. Right? We don't need to hear you. Right? We, we want to sing to the Lord. All these things. But I'm telling you, if you come every week, we'll open those scriptures and we will find Jesus in them and we'll point you to him. He's the one you carry out of here today. We might be thinking about the songs. There'll be an earworm stuck in you. you singing the song, glory to glory. You might be singing, I don't know. I'm telling you, if you take anything away today, it's Jesus is for you. He's for you. And he has a much loftier place than you give him um, place in your life.
I'm done. Okay. That's it. Shall we pray? Let's do something weird. <laughs> Becca's like, yeah. Can we just turn our hands up like this? Just, I'm not going to ask you to stand up and do like a Holy Spirit train through the building or anything like that. We just, you can even lay, you can leave them on your knee. I don't care. No one needs to know in your row. It doesn't matter. In fact, close your eyes. Could be a nosy. Could be a nosy. We just turn our hands up. And this is going to symbolize two things. Lord, we trust you. Our hands are open to receive from you provision. If you gave manna in the desert and you provided David and his fighting men through the, the showbread, and if you provided for this man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and you provided for his disciples plucking grain on the Sabbath, that you are a provider. Our hands are open, Lord, that you would provide for us. We need direction, Lord. We need direction, Lord. We need to see we need to know where to go next, Lord. Our hands are open. Our hearts are open to see where you're leading us. We wonder, Lord, we're going through life transitions. Some of us are moving to new jobs. Some of us are getting married, graduating school, uh, retiring. All these, these life transitions are happening, Lord. We're moving into new seasons. We need, we receive from you your provision. These hands show that, Lord. And Lord, they also show surrender. Lord, we surrender. Have your way, oh Lord, have your way. Take, take the reins. We let go of everything that we're holding on to, and we want you to lead us. God, we trust you. You've never not been good before. You'll never not be good in the future. You are good. Would you say that with me? You are good. Yes, God, you are good. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your son, Jesus. May he be exalted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you.